Newly Eberty is the art and state of being a woman, and I think that should be celebrated. My name is Michelle Lyons. Welcome to the Celebrate Newly Eberty podcast. Just a reminder, this podcast is for information only and not a substitute for consulting a healthcare professional. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Celebrate Newly Eberty podcast. A little bit of a different episode today. I'm flying solo. I've been updating the endo section of my female pelvic pain rehab course and I wanted to share an excerpt with you here first. So the past three years have seen an increase in our understanding of the many pain drivers in endometriosis, which is a whole body, whole person inflammatory disease. In the course, we discuss the emerging evidence of a multimodal approach, including nutrition, psychologically informed approaches to issues like central sensitization, fatigue management, pacing, exercise, and of course, the emerging evidence about a whole person approach to pelvic rehab. Enjoy this excerpt and you can find the course info on my website, celebratemuleyeberty.com. And if you're listening to this before June 30th, use the code June75 for a 75 euro discount at checkout. Enjoy the episode. See you next time. Okay, everybody, let's go with the endometriosis updates. We're going to jump straight in here asking the questions about our role as pelvic rehab professionals when it comes to endometriosis. But also, let's think about what's new in the past three years since the last update of the course. And we're going to really focus on research that's come out in the past three years as we look at different aspects of endometriosis. We know that endo is a chronic inflammatory estrogen dependent condition characterized by the implantation of endometrial-like tissue outside the uterus, and it's associated with pelvic pain and subfertility. So that's the definition of endo from this paper by Agarwal et al. in 2021. And it's nice. It's Uh, It's a nice full definition. It acknowledges that it's a chronic inflammatory condition, that it's driven by estrogen, and also that it really doesn't have much to do with the uterus, that the tissue is similar to the endometrium, but it's different from it. It's endometrial-like tissue. And then all the things, of course, that it's associated with, including pelvic pain and subfertility. But it's a big disease. And it's so under-regarded and under-treated and misdiagnosed. An estimated 5 to 10% of reproductive age women, approximately 176 million women worldwide, are affected by this disease. Now, a quick word. In most of the research about endo, they talk about women because it is primarily um, observed in people who are assigned female at birth, people who have a uterus. But it has been found in men. And of course, trans men are also going to be dealing with this issue. Um, We will also talk about how um, women uh, and people assigned female at birth of colour have an even harder time um, getting appropriate treatment for endometriosis. It was traditionally regarded as a disease of neurotic, um, employed, educated, medium to upper class white women who had delayed childbirth. And of course, like probably because they were the only ones who could afford medical treatment. But anyway, we know that um, it's an equal opportunity disease, it would seem. And we don't know what causes it. 
We know we can manage it rather than cure it. We have been thinking that up until fairly recently that the best approach was surgical diagnosis, surgical treatment. Things are just starting to change a little bit in that we're now acknowledging that maybe providing people with a menu of choices that best suits their needs might be a better way to deal with endometriosis. So while yes, surgical management with laparoscopic exploration, histological confirmation, clear margins, um, you know, ideally pelvic prehab and rehab, still regarded as the gold standard, we do have to acknowledge that's not always going to be available to every person with endometriosis. Um, some people will choose to manage it with nutrition, with lifestyle, with medication, and we meet everybody where they are and we help them on their way. We know that pelvic pain due to endometriosis is typically chronic. This is coming back to the Agarwal paper. I'm going to step down off my soapbox for a minute. Um, pelvic pain is due to endometriosis. It's typically chronic. It persists for more than six months, oftentimes a lot longer than six months. And the Agarwal paper goes on to talk about how, although typical endometriosis pain symptoms include dysmenorrhea, non-menstrual pelvic pain, um, sometimes you'll see that we're uh, reduced to NMPP in the literature. And what we'll do is as we talk about the different types of pain that people with endometriosis have to deal with and how we can support them, it's the non-menstrual pain that's actually oftentimes more distressing than the menstrual pain. So remember that with endometriosis, we can have pain that starts out as cyclical um, with the period, but then it prog can progress to constant. And when you know the pain is going to be happening around your period, to a degree, you can kind of plan your life around it. But it's the non-menstrual pain that can make day-to-day -day activities participating in education or work opportunities really difficult. Other symptoms, again, coming back to the Agarwal paper, um, include dyspareunia, abdominal or back pain, dyskexia or painful bowel movements, and bloating. These are all common and may lead to unnecessary testing and treatment, which could impede correct diagnosis. And you can see here, there's the full title of the Agarwal paper from 2021. Knapp's paper from 2022 talks about how endometriosis is the most prevalent benign gynecologic disease affecting approximately 5 to 10% of women of reproductive age. It's described as the presence of functioning endometrium-like tissue outside the uterine cavity. And Delacorte's paper also confirms this, saying that the burden of the disease is high, both regarding the quality of life and from an economic perspective. Now, Agarwal goes on to also talk about how patients with chronic pelvic pain display an array of symptoms potentially related to several common gynecologic and non-gynecologic conditions, making timely diagnosis of endometriosis challenging resulting in diagnostic delays of up to 12 years, and that's probably a bit more realistic. You may have heard me talk before about the evil triplets of female pelvic pain, so endometriosis, interstitial cystitis or bladder pain syndrome, and pudendal neuralgia. But of course, there are the evil triplets, and then there are their cousins, um, issues like irritable bowel syndrome, vulvodynia, adenomyosis, We've got these chronic overlapping pain conditions to consider as well. Things like chronic fatigue, 
temporomandibular joint dysfunction, so TMJ issues, chronic headache, fibromyalgia, and all of these issues can travel together and can be reflective of a sensitized nervous system. We're going to talk about screening for that and we're going to talk about helping people with that issue as we go through the course. Delays in diagnosis lead to delayed implementation of effective treatment, including treatment of pain and infertility associated with endo, which negatively impact the patient's quality of life and result in substantial economic burden stemming from higher healthcare utilization expenses. Now, diagnostic delays may be due to multiple factors, including the normalization of pelvic pain and dysmenorrhea. Once more, painful periods are not normal but also the misinterpretation of symptoms being due to other comorbidities, such as depression, inflammatory bowel disease, interstitial cystitis, among others, as well as the need for laparoscopic diagnosis and frequent referrals to other specialists. Again, this is from the Agarwal paper from 2021. Now, NAP's paper from 2022 looks at how symptoms may include dysmenorrhea, dyspareunia, dyskatsia, so painful bowel movements, dysuria, painful urination, chronic pelvic pain, fatigue, which is often overlooked, and subfertility. They go on to talk about how, to date, the exact pathogenesis and pathophysiology are unknown. And haven't we been reading that sentence for at least the past 20 years, you know, that we've been talking in a serious way about endometriosis in the literature? Theories regarding the cause of endo are retrograde menstruation, uh, silomic metaplasia, lymphatic and vascular metastasis. Uh, but also, we do have to consider the interaction of pro-inflammatory, endocrine, immunologic and pro-angiogenic processes. They may be involved. And that's from Zondervan's paper in 2020. Knapp goes on to talk about how medical and surgical treatment options for endo are often not sufficient to alleviate symptoms for women suffering from endometriosis. That's a really important sentence and one that I heard again and again at the World Endo Congress in Edinburgh uh, this past May, that so many people, they finally get their diagnosis, they finally have their surgery, and hopefully it is laparoscopic excision, not ablation and not hysterectomy, and they still have pain after their surgery because the disease process went on for so long they really may have developed some nociplastic changes some central sensitization issues that's the bad news the good news is that as pelvic rehab professionals we are in a great position to help people with this more of that in upcoming segments of this course Zondervan goes on to talk about how medical treatment involves hormonal therapy. It's often only partially effective, has numerous side effects and hampers the option to become pregnant. Surgical interventions are associated with invalidating complications, including bowel and bladder dysfunction and considerable recurrence of symptoms, very much depending on the skill of the excision surgeon that you get. Therefore, many women with endo feel the need to develop non-medical tools they can use to control the symptoms associated with endometriosis themselves. And that's where we can come in. 
Knapp talks about how empowering patients suffering from chronic illnesses, including endometriosis, by giving them opportunities to positively influence their symptoms could decrease feelings of helplessness and increase the quality of life. And we'll have a look at different papers that explore that um, just to really fill our toolboxes with ways that we can help people with endo. Self-management activities may be important empowering tools and they're defined as skills that are used by an individual to control various aspects of life, including pain and other symptoms of disease. Women with endo often use different self-management strategies such as self-care, complementary therapies and lifestyle interventions, possibly including things like heat, rest, exercise, meditation or dietary changes. And in the course, we're going to look at the evidence for some of these approaches. Now, Jung talked about the possibility of phenotyping endometriosis and came up with four different phenotypes. So type one would be a more peripheral group, uh, more nociceptive pain, and that would be pain due to the lesions. Type two would be the endopain amplified by other comorbid pain conditions. So it could be coming from the bladder, the bowel, musculoskeletal. Type three would be pain arising mostly from central factors, so nociplastic pain. And type four would be a mixed pattern of type one and type three. So you'll remember in the previous lecture, we talked about the differences between nociceptive and neuropathic and nociplastic pain. And again, just that overlap and development into central sensitization. So again, if there's any fogginess about that, I invite you to go back and review. Hanley's 2023 paper looked at the impact of diagnostic method on the sense of control or powerlessness and social support in endometriosis patients. Just to see, does it matter to patients whether they're having a clinical diagnosis, um, diagnostic imaging, and we are seeing some great advances in ultrasonography and even MRI interpretation, or diagnostic laparoscopy, do patients care? And they concluded in this paper that the diagnostic method of endo does not appear to impact an individual's sense of control over their disease, nor their access to social supports. Now, Calphus in 2022 talks about how women with endo often experience stigma, invalidation and dismissal from health professionals. We have probably all heard about people going to their medical providers with pelvic pain issues. It could be interstitial cystitis, bladder pain syndrome. It could be vulvodynia. It could be any of the pelvic pain diagnoses that we're covering in this course. And they're being told that painful periods are normal, painful sex is normal, and, and not really respected, believed, or treated appropriately. So Calphus talks about how these experiences not only have an impact on the diagnosis of this condition, which takes eight to nine years on average, but also increase psychological distress. And of course, that in itself is going to increase pain. For instance, feelings of pain invalidation by medical professionals, this is from the Calphus paper, have been shown to increase shame and depressive symptoms. And Kalfos goes on to talk about how understanding the role of psychosocial factors in relation to outcomes in endometriosis could raise awareness among healthcare professionals about their importance in both the conceptualization but also the management of this condition. 
And this in turn can contribute to a shift from a biomedical view of the condition to a broader conceptualization that is more comprehensive. To support this, previous research testing psychological interventions in endometriosis has shown significant improvements in participants' quality of life. We're going to explore this concept a little bit more fully, but essentially believing people when they tell you they're having pelvic pain, but also giving them some psychological self-coping tools doesn't necessarily treat the disease process itself, or even for some people, it doesn't decrease their pain, but it improves quality of life, improves autonomy and self-efficacy, and really has been shown to be quite beneficial. This paper I love. This paper is from um, Andrew Horn's group, and it was published in 2022, The Pathophysiology, Diagnosis and Management of Endo. And what I like about this is it's a lovely inclusive um, description talking about how endometriosis affects approximately 190 million women and people assigned female at birth worldwide. It's a chronic inflammatory gynecologic disease marked by the presence of endometrial-like tissue outside the uterus, which in many patients is associated with debilitating, painful symptoms. Patients with endometriosis are also at greater risk of infertility, emergence of fatigue, multi-site pain, and other comorbidities. That's a really important sentence for us to remember because we can help with fatigue management. We can help with multi-site pain. We can help with psychologically informed coping strategies. We can help with making evidence-informed choices about nutrition and exercise. Thus, endometriosis is best understood as a condition with variable presentation and effects at multiple life stages. A long diagnostic delay after symptom onset is common and persistence and recurrence of symptoms despite treatment is common. And Horn goes on to say that although more than 50% of adults diagnosed as having endometriosis report onset of severe pelvic pain during adolescence, most young women with endo do not receive timely treatment. Almost 60% of women will see three or more clinicians before a diagnosis of endometriosis is made, after an average of seven years with symptoms. Horn goes on to talk about how women with endometriosis lose on average 11 hours of work per week, similar to other chronic conditions, including type 2 diabetes, Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. And actually, as you'll see um, in an upcoming lecture, we'll talk about maybe the autoimmune connection between endometriosis and issues like rheumatoid arthritis. Adolescents are at risk of having inadequately remediated symptoms during prime years for social development and life planning, and women must be resilient against inadequately remediated symptoms and emerging comorbidities. Which brings us on to this paper from Vus Group, looking at pain levels of women diagnosed with endometriosis. Is there a difference in younger women? This came out in 2022 and talked about how young patients with clinically diagnosed endometriosis have significantly higher dysmenorrhea and dyspareunia pain levels than older patients. By acknowledging and understanding this, early diagnosis and adequate treatment can be promoted. Dyspareunia in adolescents in particular merits clinical attention. So we will talk about the development of a working diagnosis of endometriosis. And certainly if someone is coming to you with painful bowel movements, they're coming to you maybe with 
IBS type symptoms, but they started out with a cyclical pattern. We want to be sure that we're very highly suspicious that that might be endometriosis. So painful periods plus bowel symptoms, think endometriosis. And you might be the first person to put these pieces together. But certainly for younger people, for adolescents with endo, you know, you might hear statements like sex is painful. Sometimes it hurts to pee. Sometimes I can't poo. Sometimes my brain gets foggy. All of those would be red flags for endo. When defined by indications for diagnosis, the prevalence of endometriosis ranged from 15.4% to 71.4% among women with chronic pelvic pain and from 9 to 68% among women presenting with infertility. But few studies have actually investigated the incidence and prevalence of endo specifically among adolescents. And from this VUST paper from 2022, they say that the reported prevalence of visually confirmed endometriosis among adolescents with pelvic pain ranges from 25 to 100%, with an average of 49% among adolescents with chronic pelvic pain and 75% among those unresponsive to medical treatment. So we can talk about the endometriosis phenome, about the clinical you know, picture with chronic pelvic pain, dysmenorrhea, dyskexia, dyspareunia, fatigue. Um, they may also have comorbidities like adenomyosis or fibroids or subfertility, but they can have non-gynae comorbidities as well. So urological, uh, GI, immunologic, neurologic, psychological, and then on a surgical pathological level, if we're building out this picture of the endometriosis phenome, we can have superficial lesions, we can have endometrioma, we can have deep infiltrating endometriosis, but of course it can also migrate outside the abdominopelvic region. And we can have iatrogenic where it's migrated into scar tissue, so particularly things like cesarean section scars or even hysterectomy scars. So those would be the main presentations of endometriosis that we need to consider. So to put it together, Horn talks about how endo is associated with a range of painful symptoms, including chronic pelvic pain, cyclical and non-cyclical, painful periods, painful sex, pain on defecation, pain on urination. And the severity can range from mild to debilitating. Some women have no symptoms, others have episodic pelvic pain, and still others have constant pain in multiple body regions. And a related observ observation from this Horn paper is that some women transition between these categories, progressing from episodic localized pain to chronic, complex, widespread, more difficult to treat pain. And here's another key thing to, to remember. Women with disease that is anatomically severe can have minimal symptoms and women with minimal evidence of endo can have severe life affecting symptoms, much like we see with osteoarthritis. You know, people can have horrible knee x-rays and very few symptoms and have major symptoms, but very few arthritic changes on x-ray. So endometriosis is the same. But endometriosis is certainly a multi-system condition. Although pelvic pain is the most common symptoms of, symptom of possible endo, women with endometriosis also have a high risk of co-occurring or evolving multi-site pain. And we're going to talk more about that. 
patients with endo have a higher risk of presentation with comorbid chronic pain conditions such as fibromyalgia, migraines, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, osteoarthritis, and reports of back, bladder, or bowel pain are prevalent. And Horn says that dyskexia is potentially predictive of endometriosis. So painful bowel movements are potentially predictive of endo. Nearly 50% of women with bladder pain syndrome or interstitial cystitis have endometriosis. IBS is a common co-occurring diagnosis that reinforces the importance of awareness of endo among gastroenterologists. And these conditions may share a common cause. They can arise together owing to shared environmental or genetic factors and or the occurrence of comorbid pain conditions could be due to changes in pain perception after repeated sensitization. We also know that women with endo are at a greater risk of other non-malignant gynae issues like fibroids, adenomyosis. We talked about the autoimmune conditions, um, early menopause, and then also some cardiovascular conditions as well. But the hypothesis is that all of these mechanisms in and around endometriosis are enhanced by or result in chronic inflammation. So local and systemic chronic inflammation can directly activate afferent nociceptive fibers and promote pelvic pain. So we need to take this whole person anti-inflammatory approach. Horn also talks about how in common with other chronic pain conditions, women with endometriosis often report experiencing fatigue and depression. Do we have some evidence-based strategies for those? Yes, we do. Um, infertility, significantly more common in patients with endo, a doubling of risk compared with women without endo. And endometriosis is discovered in 30 to 50% of women who present for assisted reproductive treatment. Okay, so that's the background. That's where we're coming from. Those are all the issues that people with endo are going to be dealing with. And what we're going to do is really work on filling the toolbox with evidence-based strategies in the same way that we did with the earlier modules on vulvodynia, on bladder pain syndrome, interstitial cystitis, on all the pelvic pain conditions that we're covering. There is a lot of overlap with uh, the approaches because we're, we're treating a whole person here and we really want to make sure that we're addressing body and soul and mind in a very evidence-based but holistic way really trying to tick all the boxes so no matter what path she goes on whether it's medical or surgical that we are there to support ideally with prehab as well as rehab and that's what we're going to be discussing in the upcoming modules we'll talk about manual therapy exercise nutrition pacing fatigue management what to do when what's what we should do what we should avoid what we should eat what we shouldn't all the things. So I will see you in the next lecture. Thanks so much for listening and take care. Bye for now. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you prefer to watch, all the videos of the interviews will be uploaded onto YouTube. If you'd like to learn more, there's a full suite of online courses on women's health, including courses on female pelvic pain rehab, female hormonal health, oncology rehab and more. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram, Michelle Lyons underscore Muleyeberty for special offers and announcements. Until the next time, celebrate Muleyeberty. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.